What is up, everyone? Welcome to the 38th show of Talk Racing to Me. As always, I am your faithful host, Naomi Tucker. This week brings a very special guest. I dare say it's the first time I've ever had a jockey on my show who's also a practicing veterinarian. Probably because I don't think there are that many as, as far as my knowledge goes. Farron Peterson graciously spared me an hour or so to di- dissect her own life and experiences, but also dive into various topics, I- including the relationship between a jockey and their agent, the difference in breakdown rates between horse racing and, for instance, sport horse fields such as dressage and show jumping, as well as telling a story about her talking to Peter while she was active as a jockey on the West Coast and they were protesting out there. She truly is a remarkable representative for the sport, using her knowledge of horse anatomy for the betterment as well as putting it to full use as a jockey. I particularly enjoyed her discussing a a horse's warm-up away from the pony as well as how she gets them out of the gate. If that all made you curious, wait no further. Farron, it's awesome to have you on my podcast here of course you moved your tag to laurel park uh, starting january the 15th that was also the first day that i chatted with you before your first mount and then you rode your first winner on the same day for hammy smith i mean that was obviously a wonderful beginning to your time here at Laurel Parker. Uh, what was the lead up like for you? And what was that day like? Because just staying in and out, we'll dive back into your uh, uh, rich history in just a second. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just exciting to have two mounts even on my first day here because you never know how long it'll take to get some business going in a new track. And one of them was from Pat McBurney, which was great because I rode for him this summer. So you know, that was kind of a welcoming thing to feel like somebody from home a bit that I recognized. And then Hamilton Smith, uh, he was new for me. And actually, Rosina Pravnik had messaged me afterwards. And she goes, um, you know, it took me years to get into his barn. And <laughs> so I was very honored that he gave me a shot right off the bat. And, you know, he had told me in the paddock that this horse is well bred, but whatever reason and it's few starts it just hadn't tried in the race so he's like you know just see if you can get the horse to try for you and fortunately I hadn't been on that horse's back before but we got along great and were able to communicate with each other and that horse just ran a great race for me and um, so it was an unexpected surprise for everyone involved and of course you can't ask for a better timing than to win on your debut at a new track so that yes, really Spanish Doro came in at $20.20, so a long shot winner that put you on the map straight away. Was it uh-huh. perhaps a bit of a relief as well? Like you mentioned, it's a great start, but you you know, you know, came uh, from that meet at Aqueduct, which might have not been as successful as you wanted, and then to come back and start like this, that must have been... Um, in Dutch, we have a saying, it says, uh, it goes like, Buck von mein heart. It means a weight of my heart. Yes. Yeah, it is, because... I mean, everyone will tell you that in racing, whether you're a trainer or a jockey, it's like, you know, you need to put in the dedication and hard work, but you also need a little bit of luck and timing. And so it just felt like I didn't get that break at Aqueduct. And so to come to Laurel and not really know how things were going to take off here, because I came in with very few Maryland connections. And then to just have that right off the bat, it was definitely a relief. And, you know, that's how you get trainers and owners to start taking notice of you. So 
yeah, I was very grateful for that. Can you talk me through how you got started at Laurel? Were you riding out on the track or what was your sort of transition like? Well, so I'd come from Aqueduct and had to do a quarantine for about a week in Maryland. And so during that time, there was actually a trainer I'd ridden for, Mark Beecher, when I was at um, Mammoth this summer. And he'd had me ride one of his steeplechase horses in a mile and a half race. And so we were still in contact. So during that time, I was just going out and riding the steeplechase horses, which I really enjoyed because it's just so different than being at the racetrack. I mean, you're taking these horses out on the trails and, you know, through pastures and just exposing them to so many different things. Um, so I would do that every morning until I, you know, completed my quarantine and was allowed on the backside. And then um, had a, I think only one day before we had entries for Friday. And so that was my first time going on the backside, introducing myself to people and agents are not allowed on the backside, and neither were they at Mammoth. So, um, luckily, I'm used to just you know going up and you know meeting someone for the first time. And uh, most of the time, I don't even know what these trainers look like, you know. So it's a little bit intimidating, but um, it went along quite well. And then met Hammy that morning, and the next day, I mean, he surprised me with that mount with Spanish de Oro. Didn't even tell me he was going to name me on. So. The timing was great to just get in as soon as I could and um, start meeting people and getting going here. And then started having horses to breeze. And so I come every morning and some mornings I'll go to Pimlico as well. And some mornings I go to Fairhill. So I really enjoyed the diversity of going to different training tracks and even riding the steeplechase horses. It just seems like Maryland is such horse country and there's so much opportunity out here. Wow, Farron, that's quite a lot of information to unpack that you just gave me. And, and from a, a, a rider's perspective, I can completely understand why riding steeplechase horses outside in the pastures can also probably refresh you a little bit. And, and what a wonderful story that Hami gave you this opportunity right from the get-go. So if you have to say, you know, your impression of the Maryland Circuit, Laurel Park. It sounds like it's been good so far. Absolutely. People have been very receptive and it seems like there are just so many great trainers, great horsemen out here. They speak really highly of each other. So it seems like a really constructive group of people. Yeah, I, I must admit that I felt the same here. It really is a place full of very strong horsemen and women. But let's move back to perhaps more of the earlier stages of your riding career. You're start, you started as a jockey in 2018 at Golden Gate Field whilst being at university studying veterinary medicine. That was at UC Davis. The initial intention to start out as a jockey, how did that come about? Because... I dare say it's it's a an industry, a sport that a lot of people would roll into via their family, but that wasn't the case for you. Right. And that's why it came about in sort of a backwards order, because for as long as I can remember growing up, I talked about wanting to be a jockey and I was raised on a horse's back. My mom rode English and taught me from a young age. And then I started riding dressage and jumpers, but just never had any racetrack connections, never knew how to become a jockey. So my way to get into the racing world was to go to vet school and become a racetrack vet. And so it was during vet school that I was working at a thoroughbred breeding farm and delivering foals and working with the repro vet. 
And so the lady who owned it is also a trainer at Golden Gate. So I asked her if I could learn how to break the babies on the farm. So I started doing that. And then I asked if I could get my exercise rider's license at the track, which was an hour from UC Davis. So I started doing that. And then, of course, I wanted to breeze a horse. And then as I just kept breezing more horses and, um, you know, getting more experience, people kept telling me, you should be a jockey. And I didn't think I'd be able to do it with school and do something part-time. And so I just decided to be my own agent right on the weekends. And then after a couple months, I won my first race. And then about a month later, I'd gotten my fifth winner and started my bug. And all of a sudden, it just took off. And I rode very part-time during school. But once I graduated, you know, I realized it had more success than I thought. And I wondered what lied ahead, you know, if I really went full-time at this. And so... After that, like I've never looked back and I really want this to be my full like long-term career and do veterinary medicine on the side. And then one day when I'm old and retired from writing, then I'll be a full-time vet. But in the meantime, this is absolutely what I want to do. It's not a bad career to fall back on once you do decide to, to do something else. But getting back to, you mentioned breaking babies. Well, Having done that myself, I know that it's it's not the easiest thing to start out with. I mean, you yeah. must have absolutely loved doing it because it can be, you know, very dangerous, very tricky, and but it also teaches you a lot about horses. Yeah, it does. And I think it's important to start from that sort of foundation. I mean, I even look back on my dressage foundation and I would have never thought that that would help being a jockey, but just all the different parts of the equestrian world and even I would think about like uh, delivering the foals and then starting them and then being the first one to take that horse to the racetrack. And it just really helps you get inside a horse's head. And, you know, when they're trying to wheel on you or, you know, spook at something new instead of being reactionary and, you know, harsh with the horse or something, it helps you to just sort of understand the horse's way of thinking and realizing, okay, like, you know, less than a year ago, this horse was running around with all its friends in a pasture. And now we're asking it to do this. And so, I think just going through all those stages of a horse's life is really important in your horsemanship. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you mentioned your family did have experience and involvement in, in horses, albeit not thoroughbreds. Were they supportive of your path or your, your choice in, in career, or maybe they saw it as a hobby at first? They were very supportive. Um, my mom, just being a horsewoman, she still loves following my races and, um, you know, talking through even some of my horses' personalities or, you know, their past performances. And so it's been interesting that we can connect on that, even though she's never ridden a racehorse. And then my dad, he doesn't have horse experience, but I was a pole vaulter. I started in high school and then went on to college pole vaulting, but he was my high school coach. And so he's always, you know, encouraged me in my athleticism and enjoyed sort of unique, more high uh, danger types of sports. So he was really on board when I finally told him about my idea to become a jockey. And he just kept saying, like, this is what you've talked about your entire life. Why wouldn't you go for it? And, you know, not, why not give it 100%, which was a pleasant surprise, because I was worried about telling my parents and thinking, okay, like, you know, I've come all this way in my education. And are they going to be opposed to this? Because, doesn't matter to me like I'm going to do it regardless but it makes such a big difference when you have your parents fully backing you it certainly does and what's well, not like you 
aren't using your education, you can always get back to it. So it's not like you've thrown away the years at university. You're just doing something else in the meantime, right? Right. Like I graduated, you cannot take away, you know, your DVM. And so I've been able to use it in the meantime as well, which has been great just doing some um, veterinary work on dark days off the track and just to stay refreshed in my medicine. And just the more that I'm working with horses, either on the ground or on their back, the better I am with them. So I know it helps me as a jockey. I know it's you know good for my mind to just keep um, pushing myself in all those areas. Yes, that was going to be one of my questions. How do you combine still, you know, working part time as a vet, and, and you know, who who do you do that for at present, and how much time does that take up? Right. Um, so I've done it part time. So in New Jersey, so each state that I live in, you have to get a different state veterinary license. And so in New Jersey, I was doing some acupuncture on jumpers because I'm also acupuncture certified, and that has been a big interest of mine because I love the biomechanics of horses, the athleticism, and I think acupuncture really challenges you to think through sort of compensatory muscles and injuries and um, how to get the horse in the right balance and using its body to the best of its ability, which I also think correlates to riding and thinking about how you can get the horse in a race to use its body most efficiently and increase stride length or, you know, use the correct muscle groups that are going to give it the biggest push at the end and so different things like that. Um, then when I was at Aqueduct this winter, there's not a lot of sport horses in the wintertime up north here. So I was working at um, a small animal veterinary clinic in Staten Island, and I was getting to learn a lot of different surgeries. And so I would do that on my dark days. And so that was just really interesting for me to, you know, they say, even if it's a small animal and you want to specialize in horses, like it all correlates very well. And just um, using those fine motor skills of, you know, your surgical skills and same sort of suture patterns. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And then I'm working on getting my Maryland veterinary license approved next. So I will be licensed in quite a few States now. Um, but I'll see what opportunities come up for that. That's Absolutely incredible. So that would that mean that you would try maybe do some stuff on the backside of Laurel Park as well, or would you still go with sort of small, smaller animals or sport horses? I would go with more sport horses. Um, I just always been pretty conscientious about not having a conflict of interest by working on the race horses and riding them. So I don't even ask to get licensed as a vet on the backside. Yeah. But I do enjoy just, um, you know, getting to talk to trainers about some of their interesting cases. And uh, they often seem interested in, you know, telling me about that and talking through things. So I find that that keeps me mentally stimulated on the racehorse end. And then when I go and practice, I can work on, you know, the sport horses. Yeah, and you mentioned, and this is also something that I asked you during our first ever interview, how does being a veterinarian help you as a jockey or correlate to it? And you said about, you know, breathing and how they move during the race. But do you also think that maybe that means in a way you're a wonderful sort of representative or someone to talk to about the horse racing industry because it's still perceived to be cruel to animals, but as a veterinarian, you can kind of look at it from a completely different point of view whilst also still being entrenched in the industry? Right, exactly. That's been one of my hopes of, you know, I didn't plan it this way to be a jockey 
um, from a veterinarian. And but looking back, it's like this is so perfect the way it turned out. Um, especially as we've gotten more push recently, and more so in California. Um, you know, and the media can really skew the facts. And so I think just being able to say firsthand, like I'm the one on their backs. I see them trained every morning. You know, I see all the protocols in place and really how well these horses are treated as athletes. And that was actually useful even in veterinary school because several of my colleagues would even ask me about that. Um, so they had respect for me as a doctor and then they were able to ask me, you know, how is it that you feel comfortable working in the racing industry? And then as I could explain it to them, then they would say, okay, like, yeah, they are treated like superstar athletes and um, there are just so many misconceptions. So I hope that my story can keep um, putting a positive light on racing because that is what it deserves. Yeah, I agree with you there. And would they, for example, ask you about, you know, the breakdowns that happen during the race days or in the morning hours and, and how would you answer them? Yeah, with them, um, that's a, something people don't understand is horses needing to be euthanized for a broken leg because for humans, you know, that wouldn't make sense. Like how would a broken leg cause that? But being able yeah. to described to them because of the mass of the horses and uh, the recovery. There are so many more complications uh, associated with that. And so, you know, we have to think of what's most humane and uh, what, how long the road to recovery will be and what their chances are and that it really depends on where the injury occurs. So, yeah, there are a lot of things that don't make sense because horses are just so much larger than humans. We cannot, you know, keep them standing on just three feet without having complications from that and um, putting them in slings doesn't always work well. And so uh, there's a lot to kind of have to be explained. And so I hope that people continue to feel comfortable to approach me about those things because I'm never offended by answering those questions. You know, like I'd rather them talk to me about that. And actually when I was at Del Mar riding um, a few summers back and PETA was putting a lot of pressure on the racing there and they would have protests and then we would go out as the horse racing industry and kind of be on the opposite side of them. And I would go and stand on the PETA side sometimes and talk to them. And I had like great conversations with people there and was able to tell them about my background. And I remember one was even like holding up a sign, you know, and talking about horse racing, like killing horses. And as he kept talking to me, he just was like dropping a sign and just, he didn't even seem to notice it, but I was just thinking to myself, wow, like this is actually working. And, um, you know, it's nice to be able to have educated conversations with people and, you know, not just be fighting and yelling back and forth because that's never constructive. But, you know, if we can actually educate people, then they realize what horse racing is truly about. What was it that some of the, the Peter people would be mentioning to you as arguments against the sport? And, and how did you rebuke that? Mm -hmm. Um, some of them had to talk about, you know, horses racing at a young age. And then there are actually, there's research on both ends about, um, sometimes it's more beneficial for horses to start racing at a young age. And I even talked about as an athlete myself, like doing sports, um, growing up, it just gives you that body awareness and that helps you as an athlete later in life. And, strengthening those bones is essential as you develop and so it's all about balance really like that we don't overdo it and mm -hmm. so of course some animals just like people are going to be more fragile than others but that doesn't mean that you you know exclude an entire group of animals um, because m many of them 
their bodies hold up to it. And, and I do, do believe that with the young horses, especially getting that exercise in aids bone development and strengthening, right? Yes, I do. I absolutely believe that. And, you know, they can get injured in a pasture. You know, there are just so many ways that that can happen. And I even talk about, you know, these horses are like, I think horse racing is the most natural form of athleticism for a horse to run as fast as they can run in a pack of animals and, their competitors, I mean, when you're riding them, you can see it. You can feel when a horse wants to reach that wire first. And uh, it's a really great feeling because for me, it's very validating of, you know, they love this and I get to help them, you know, win and like achieve their best athletic victory. And so to be able to explain that to people, because they also have this conception that, you know, we're just whipping them down the stretch. And I don't think that's true. I think a lot of horses run without the whip and they actually just want to win and you can feel it when you're the one holding the reins and you know feeling the pressure from their mouth like wanting to pass another horse so being able to explain that to them and um just saying you know like look at wild horses this is what they love to do they're built for speed they're naturally competitive animals and so uh just that people realize it's not something that they're being forced into and the ones that don't want to run don't run and then they don't make it very far as a racehorse and go and find another career. And so, you know, we don't force them to anyways, because then we're just losing out on money. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. If they don't want to run, we can't make them as much as we think. Sometimes we can educate them. It, It definitely has to come from the horse itself. How do you think horse racing stacks up in terms of, injury rate as well as quality of care compared to, for example, the sport horse industry, dressage, show jumping, uh, three-day eventing. Right. I think quality of care, I think, is some of the highest because it's at a racetrack where we have, like, all these regulations and protocols and it's not at private farms or anything. So everything is, you know, being closely watched and monitored. And so... You know, you can't get away with neglect and things like that because you will be told on. And so I think that is a huge benefit. And, of course, sport horses are often treated well, too, but it depends. And, um, you know, in any highly competitive sport, whether it's humans, animals, um, you know, there are going to be cheaters. And so I think that people tend to point at the racing industry as being, you know, the biggest cheaters. But I think actually when horses are at private stables um, with people who want to win those blue ribbons and such. Like, I think that there's actually probably more temptation and more ability there to be able to do those things. And our drug testing is very strict and we just keep getting stricter on our rules and regulations. So um, from that standpoint, I think horse racing really um, does well. But of course, because we're also, in the spotlight every time that there is a rule broken you're going to hear about it whereas people aren't following you know other uh, equine sports as closely so there's that and then um i'd say in both they're very good about treating these animals well i mean having grooms that live with the horses and watch them you know 24 7 basically and using a lot of different therapies like having masseuses and chiropractors and um, acupuncturists and 
you know, there's a lot of things like that that I don't think people realize that horses use just like humans would. And the more that human athletes um, benefit from those sort of modalities, the more that it seems to become popular in the horse world as well, which I really like because as a human athlete before like doing pole vault, things that worked for me really helped me like when I have that personal body experience to know how it's going to affect my equine patients. That's very, very interesting. And when it comes to the injury rates, now I don't know much about the injury rates in uh, sort of sport horses and, and other disciplines. And as you mentioned, whenever something happen in, happens in horse racing, we, we tend to see it in the news or we tend to hear about it because there is such a spotlight. How is that in, in sport competitions? Maybe you have some experience with that via your mother. Is there a lot of like high injury rates or is it more because they do tend to um, exercise their horses at a later, later age. But I do think that also has to do with the breed is something completely different. Like I've had warm bloods and thoroughbred experience and I feel like they develop at completely different stages. Um, mm -hmm. So that corresponds, I also believe with the age limit that they have in, for example, dressage and show jumping, but how is it in terms of, breakdown rates do we see a lot of these life-ending injuries or is that more prevalent in horse racing due to the fact that as you mentioned it is perhaps the the most natural but also highest pressure that form of sport for horses that we can kind of put them in yeah no that's true um that is the thing with asking the body to perform at such a high speed and maximal output but then Actually, with cross-country jumping, that's where we see the highest incident of heart attacks. And, of course, you know, a horse can drop dead from that. And you don't see it nearly as often in racehorses. And so I don't think we quite understand why that is. But um, that is absolutely something that we see in the cross-country world. And then in dressage, um, I've had a vet before describe it to me. And, I mean, it was just his opinion. But... He was saying you get some of these really long-term sort of arthritic changes from the movements we're asking them to do. And so he says longevity-wise, you know, arthritis is pretty painful. And so he's like, you know, is that like less humane? So I think there are a lot of sides to the argument. But certainly in dressage, you know, you're not going to see those types of injuries, um, you know, that lead to a humane euthanasia kind of decision. Um, and then same with jumpers. I mean, jumpers certainly get their share of injuries, but it's going to be more tendons and things like that, which could be career ending, but maybe not life ending. So, um, that is the difficult thing. Yeah. Perhaps that's also the reason why we hear so much more about the injuries in horse racing, because it tends to be perhaps a lot more, um, grave and indeed uh, life ending. Whereas if you, the, the injury rates or the injuries you just mentioned are the things that horses might carry for the rest of their life when they're not competing at that top level anymore, but you won't hear about that because hopefully they're going to go to a nice retirement place and, and they'll kind of live out their days. But that of course is not nearly as news grabbing as a, a horse, unfortunately not being able to continue in, in any way, form or shape possible any longer but let's uh, let's get back to your career which we kind of started on at the beginning and then uh, we went a little bit off topic which I wanted to do because I love hearing your background your expertise and your take on these 
differences between industries that of course are based on the athletes that we both love so much in horses right you mentioned that when you're riding part-time and and once you completed your veterinary medicine study that was it you wanted to become a jockey and and kind of ride out and do uh, and uh, participate as a professional jockey for as long as you could what was the sort of the spark that made you think I want to do this professionally and and not just part-time and and change course once you finish and and become a veterinarian? Right. For me, it was, um, you know, I wasn't winning very often because I was riding a lot of long shots, but I was getting them in the money a fair amount. And people kept pointing that out to me and talking about how quickly I was picking up my riding and, you know, they could just see the changes in me all the time. And so I kept thinking, well, maybe I have more of a knack for this than I realized. And I'll never really know until I'm given an opportunity to ride, you know, more decent horses and really see like, you know, can I get my win percentage up? And um, I thought if this is what I've always wanted to do. And as a athlete in college, I competed at division one level and I was much more successful than I would have guessed if I had never gone for it. And so I thought, okay, I know I have this athletic background and I know I have a great writing background. And so if I never go for it, I think I'll always wonder what if, and, you know, do I have more potential than I realize? And it's easy to listen to your doubters. And I had a lot of people at that time just kind of acting like I was nuts for choosing to do this when I have a veterinary degree, but I just knew that I wouldn't be fulfilled if I didn't really go for it and never gave it my all. And that's just the person I am, like I've, even as a pole vaulter, I never felt fearful. And and I had a few serious accidents as a pole vaulter and sprained my neck, had a concussion, but I never even thought twice, like it never got to me. And I think that that confidence is also very important as a jockey, um, just to never, I mean, you have to give your horse that confidence to go through a hole or go up the rail and make those kind of split second risky decisions that'll make the difference. And so I knew I had that part um, as an athlete that was really strong. And so just because of those different aspects, I kept thinking, you know, I think I'd be a successful jockey if I was ever given the opportunity, which like we were talking about at the beginning, you need a little bit of luck and a little bit of timing. And, um, you know, I ended up having a very successful mammoth meet, which was great, but you just never know and you have to be willing to risk it. And I was very willing to risk it and I still am. And I know that there will be slumps, but I've always been pretty um, strong-willed in that way and willing to push through it and see it out. And you just mentioned the Monmouth Park meet. 2020 really was the turnaround year for you. You won 50 races from 335 starters with over 1.6 million in purse earnings. Tell me how that came about because that is clearly, you know, getting on the right horses, dedication. That was what you all described here as you continuing and, and persevering. That seemed to be you reaping the fruits of your labor at that point. Right. Yeah, it did finally feel like I was uh, reaping the benefits. And so after I'd graduated from UC Davis, I went down to ride the Del Mar meet that summer. And that was when PETA was really giving a lot of pushback. And the governor was talking about shutting down horse racing. And it was just a crazy summer. A lot of people were shipping their horses out. 
And so the field sizes were small. I didn't have an agent there. Uh, it was just extremely difficult to get going. But I was there every single morning whenever the track, you know, when the track opened and walking barns and breezing horses and just kept thinking, like, I'm just going to grind this out and hope that I get my opportunity. And I never did that summer. I mean, I was riding horses, but all long shots. and um, But I wasn't willing to give it up. And then just a few weeks before the end of Del Mar, I happened to meet Julie Crone. She was there uh, getting an acceptance uh, award for the Lafitte Pink Eye Award. And we happened to be walking out of the main entrance, you know, and a huge crowd of people at the same time. And again, just the timing of things. I couldn't believe I walked right by her and I came up and introduced myself. And she had actually heard of me because people had been talking about me being the jockey vet and trying to get going in Southern California. And so as we started to develop a relationship, she asked about being my agent. And then she asked me a little bit later, what would you think about going to the East Coast? Because that's where she really got going. And I'd always heard that California was not very receptive to female riders. And so she said, you know, you might really be able to get your break if you're willing to move out there. And I mean, I'm very willing to do anything with my lifestyle to just be able to get a chance at this jockey career. I was like, I'll move wherever you want to go, Julie. And so packed everything, flew across to the East Coast. And then COVID hit at that time and delayed the meet. And I just was galloping for Pat McBurney, actually, out in New Jersey, waiting to see if Monmouth Park would ever open. And then it did. And then uh, it was a really slow start, actually, getting going. And then when it took off, it just really took off. You certainly took off at that point. You also won your first stakes during that meet, uh, Share yeah. the Ride in the Mr. Prospector. What was going through your mind when you crossed the wire in front that day? That must have been an exhilarating moment. It was absolutely and um, unexpected because there were some big favorites in that race. And he had just won or ran the week before and just walked into the race. And so, you know, we were hoping that, you know, he had the energy that he needed. And the trainer had told me he's been a little bit slow out of the gate. So really try to gun him out of the gate and, uh, luckily, a gate rider has been one of my strengths since I started as a jockey. And we just, I mean, took off like a rocket and never looked back. And I remember the jockey who was on the favorite told me, he goes, yeah, at the quarter pole. I thought, okay, she's done. I'm going to catch her. And he's like, and you guys just kept going and there was no catching you. And uh, so, yeah, finishing the wire, like uh, across the wire first was just incredible. And I ended up having four wins on that day too. And so that was the best day of my jockey career to date. That was an incredible feat. You you had, I think, the most successful weekend of any rider at Monmouth Park uh, with indeed the four <laughs> wins. Uh, I saw five seconds, five thirds, uh, just incredible, strong, consistent riding performance. And you just uh, labeled yourself as being a good gate rider. What do you think makes for a good gate rider? What do you do that is different or helps the horse get, get out of the gate? Are you making sure they're standing up? Do you grab a piece of mane or what is your tactic? My tactic is, I think it goes back to what I talked about with being an athlete at a younger age and developing those sort of reactive, um, you know, quick reflexes, I think is huge. And so that's my main thing is I don't really rush the horse or do anything like that but I'm just watching the gate and the second that I just see it barely break open I'm you know getting up and asking my horse to go and um 
yeah, ever since I started, like I've just always been a natural getting them out of the gate and not really having to ask a lot out of them, but just kind of making that smooth departure. Cause sometimes if you over ask too, horses will stumble. And so, you know, you don't want to push them beyond themselves in that way. Um, so I think again, just having the natural quick reflexes has really done me well as a jockey. I think that's a really good point you made that you don't want to over ask them because then it seems like the ground disappears underneath them a little bit in their sort of exuberance of trying to get away for you getting back to judy crone what were you able to learn from her did she help you develop your technique talk you through sort of race riding tactics it must have been a very you know strong learning experience for you as a developing jockey absolutely uh, Julie is really great with the horsemanship and really thinking through like how a horse is envisioning the race and you know how you can get one to stalk another horse or how you can convince one to go through a hole if they're intimidated and just kind of using your warm-up because we don't get much time. I mean, it's usually about five minutes and it might be the first time you're on your mount's back and just using that time to establish your relationship with the horse get them to listen to you. Um, she often has me break away from the pony so I can do that and, you know, just have that connection before you take them into the starting gate and run them around a racetrack at full speed. And so I think that is a huge skill to be able to have as a horseback rider. And cause we're riding all different types of personalities of horses. And she would even talk about herd mentality cause there are horses in herds who want to be, you know, the lead mare. And then there are the others who are coming from behind but we need all those personality types to want to cross the wire first. And so how you can use that to your advantage to get the horse uh, in the position it needs to be in. And she's just taught me a lot about patience and timing. And um, so I'd say those were the main takeaways from her and just watching races with her and watching her old VHS tapes when we were living together in San Diego. And um, yeah, that was great. There's been so many times where, even in a race, I could envision a certain race that she had showed me over and over again, like maybe raiding a horse or um, something like that and how she was able to win that way. And so just having those mental images in my mind have really helped me. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear. And I just picked up on something you said about breaking a horse away from the pony to kind of get them underneath you is that something you do frequently and I know from a a spectator point of view I'm always kind of watching these horses warm up and sometimes I indeed see jockeys take them away from the pony they tend to then warm them up a bit faster just a little bit more energy into them just stretching their legs ever so slightly making me think that either they want to kind of you know, wake up the horse a little bit or they want to get them to go from the gate quite fast. What's the thought process for you when you're doing that? Right. I'll usually ask the trainer in the paddock how the horse is away from the pony because obviously if you're just going to be fighting the horse, then that's going to be counterproductive. But definitely if I want a quick break out of the gate, then if you can get a bigger warm-up out of them so that they just feel really, you know, kind of blown out a little bit, ready to burst out of the gate, that can help. But also just having, you know, your own two hands on the reins, giving all the commands to the horse so you can establish that, like, okay, when I ask you to go, you need to go. You know, you need to listen to what I say and every move in the race. Whereas if you have your pony, um, they're giving about half the commands to the horse and 
you're just kind of following along and can even become a little bit mindless. And so I think it keeps you as a jockey even very sharp and like thinking through every little muscle twitch of the horse because you also don't want to be dropped as you're warmed up, you know, so you're just really helps you become one with the horse, I find. So it helps me warm up better. It helps me establish that relationship with the horse. And then I think you can warm up a little bit brisker and just really get their muscles warm and ready to respond. I think it's quite key that you hinted at when the pony rider has the horse, you're kind of a a passenger. And this is something I experienced for the first time when I was uh, an exercise rider in Australia, because in Europe, even if you have a difficult horse, we don't use ponies they might have a lead horse for you so you get a lead but nobody's holding your horse at any point so if you have a strong horse then that's up to you like you have to hold Uh the horse whereas then in Australia we sometimes indeed use lead ponies that would hold the horse and take them to the track for you especially if you're riding a difficult horse that tends to play up a lot and I remember the first time someone ponying me I literally, I think at one point started smiling and said, look, no hands, because you, you are not in control of your horse. You don't have to be. And it was so, for me, strange, because yeah. I'm used to, if I'm on a horse, I am in control. I'm the one giving the command. So that the fact that you mentioned that indeed you are kind of like a passenger and then being able to warm a horse up away from the pony, giving them that command, establishing that relationship, especially if you've never sat on the horse before, I think is quite vital so yeah really intriguing to to hear that from you of course during the Monmouth Park meet you also lost your bug Mm -hmm. and this was of course this is a bit of an interesting structure I don't think the majority of people really know how it works if you don't ride 40 winners in your first year as an apprentice you get another year but then no apprenticeship will be extended for longer than two years one and once you win that 40th mouth you're, you're a journeyman. And that happened to Leonardo Carrillo here at Laurel Park as well over the last weekend that he won his 40th mount. And all of a sudden we had to change all the weights for his further mounts on, on the Sunday because he lost that bug. How was right. that like for you? And I do believe that you asked for an extension as well, which was half possible because of COVID, right? It was because of vet school. Okay. Um, yeah. When I had started my bug, and I was in vet school in my clinical year, uh, which is, you know, a lot of times you're on call on the weekends, so I couldn't be at Golden Gate, or you're even traveling for externships and out of the country or in another state. And so I'd come to the stewards and I said, you know, is there any way that I can get the time back? Because I also can never ride weekdays because I'm always at school. So they had told me, yeah, just keep track of your dates. And then when you're getting close to your 40th winter, we'll add back whatever days you missed and um, calculate that out. So then I had gone down and ridden at Del Mar. So then I asked those stewards for a written extension before I went to the East Coast and they had written it up. And then um, it, we didn't realize that they would end it at my 40th winter. So we thought it was, you know, until um, a certain date or 40th, whichever comes later but they meant whichever comes first. So we had tried to argue that back um, since I definitely didn't get a full apprentice year, but they were not willing to change that. So that was um, a pretty tough reality to face. And obviously uh, it's always, you know, people wonder what's going to happen when they lose their bug because that is the toughest transition they say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it was pretty remarkable. I mean, that weekend I was loaded with mounts all weekend, lost my bug at the start of the weekend. And so 
any trainer had the choice to take me off if they wanted to, because it was a seven pound difference. And not one of my trainers took me off. And I kept winning a race a day after that for about a week. And I was like, okay, well, this is good, but I miss having like multiple win days, you know, like, do I still have that? You know, you just start to question things a little bit. And then all of a sudden, I had that four win day, won the Mr. Prospector stakes, and then went on to have some more three win days. And so I actually made more in earnings and had more success after I lost my bug. And um, which, of course, you'll never know until you have to face that point in the road and see like, okay, like, will my career continue on? And is this the real deal? So I was very grateful for that. That must be very mentally challenging to kind of go through that and, and hope that it's still gonna work out. Of course, seven pounds is <laughs> quite a lot. So for any trainer to say, mm-hmm. I'll keep you on, that must have given you confidence though throughout that weekend. It did, yeah. And just to see the faith that my trainers really had in me, because you never know, are they just using me for the weight off or do they really see me as you know a good rider? And for myself, I always felt very confident that it wasn't the weight that made the difference. But you know, again, if you lose that opportunity and you're all of a sudden riding only long shot horses, like it's easy to have your stats fall. So I'm glad that they really gave me that opportunity to keep riding for them. Yeah. And you moved to Aqueduct for sort of the latter end of that year, the fall meet from November 6th to December 6th. Now, of course, the, the backside still wasn't open to to you guys. Um, right. You still had Julie Chrome with you at that point. Mm-hmm. It's it must be very tough to then go into a jockey colony like the one in New York. Uh, was it daunting for you to head over there? It wasn't. I knew it was going to be uh, a big push to try to get going in New York, um, but that's part of what intrigues me. Is I always want to go. I mean, that's why I went from Golden Gate to Southern California, and people were saying, you know, you should stay at Golden Gate. But for me, I always want to surround myself. By the best people because I know that'll make me better and I'd rather try and then have to go back and you know restart again but to have never tried and always wonder like well could I have made it there the winter of 2020 right after I had this momentum going from Mammoth, and you know maybe I would have if I was able to get on the backside like it's just there are too many factors to really know and I don't regret it at all and I made so many connections just through being there and like reaching out to a lot of different people on the phone. I mean, I couldn't really meet anyone in person, which was very frustrating for me because honestly, the mornings are one of my favorite times as a jockey. Like I love going to the barns and getting on horses and getting to talk to trainers. And I think that has made a big difference. And people kept telling me that about my success at Monmouth. And they said it had to do with people recognizing my work ethic and wanting to honor that and give me a shot. And so having that strength completely taken away from me made it much more of an uphill battle than I would have predicted for New York. And they kept saying that the protocols would probably change and probably after Thanksgiving, jockeys would be on the backside. So I thought, okay, it's only temporary. And then they were saying, okay, well, probably after Christmas, jockeys will be allowed on the backside. And then that didn't happen again. So that was when I finally decided, okay, Like, it's not going to happen this year. So what is my next best option? And that's how I picked Laurel. Yeah, how did that come about for you to decide to move down here? Of course, there's so many different 
places you could go or could have gone, but you decided to come to Maryland. And uh, Simon Purdy has your book now here, who also has Weston Hamilton, who, of course, in 2018 won the Outstanding Apprentice uh, Eclipse Award. Mm -hmm. How did you change agents? Because I know, of course, Julie Crone had your book still in New York. Did she wanted to go back again to California or how did a lot of these changes come about? Right. So she was with me in New York probably about the first month. And then she has a daughter who's 15 who she had homeschooled and it's her first year starting high school. And so she had come out and lived with us in New Jersey this summer. And then the plan was for Julie to stay out here with me, but then not being able to fly back and forth with COVID and starting a next chapter in her life it just became apparent that it was going to be too difficult for Julie to be able to be on opposite coasts and not be able to truly be the mother that she wants to be. So she decided to go back. And so I respected that decision, but it took a while. I mean, after that, I never had another agent in New York and only the agents are allowed on the backside. So then to not have anyone representing me back there just became incredibly difficult. But when I was talking about, you know, reaching out to people and gaining a lot of mentors from that, um, that's been something that I think has been really productive in those few months. And so even though I didn't get, you know, the racing stats that I would have liked, I don't regret it at all. Um, I had reached out to Ramon Dominguez, and he's become a mentor of mine. And I'll still call him after my races and talk through things and get writing advice from him. And he was the one, um, probably in November, I started asking him, you know, should I consider changing tracks? And he was saying, no, like, I think you still need to see if you can find, you know, an agent that you want to work with in New York and see, you know, if anything changes over there with the protocols. But he said, if you do leave, I would recommend Laurel. And I had never really considered that because I didn't have connections with Maryland trainers and I knew trainers at Tampa because they go from Monmouth to Tampa. Um, but he told me that that would be a good lateral move from Monmouth to go to Laurel. And I'd always had just a lot of respect for um, Laurel as a track. And um, so he told me, yeah, that, that would be where I would send you. And so I gave it a little bit longer. And then in the new year, when I realized jockeys still weren't allowed on the backside and I'd had a few agents give me good advice and say, you know, we would take your book if you decide you want to stay, but they're saying we just haven't seen any jockeys that are new to the colony, not coming in with established business, be able to get going here because we can't introduce them to any of the trainers. And so I decided, okay, like I really need my jockey career to keep progressing. And so I called Ramon again and he helped me ask around to some agents and get some contacts and make sure, you know, I was finding the right person to represent me because um, an agent is very important to me. I mean, Julie helped me so much. And so I didn't want to make a rash decision. And I had probably six different people all recommend Simon. And he got right back to me that day. And when I answered the phone, he just said, let's do this. And, you know, I couldn't believe after, I, I don't know, all the months of feeling like I was really struggling and pushing to find the right fit to just feel like I landed on that in a day in the new year. I mean, it was January 1st. It was pretty incredible timing and he has been such a joy to work with. And every trainer just talks about how classy he is and how much they enjoy working with him. And he's had a lot of success as an agent. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how we build our business together. 
That sounds like such a wonderful start to the new year that many of us are hoping that 2021 is going to bring better fortune than what we uh, yes. what we saw happening in, in 2020, albeit it was a really good year for you. So even just looking back, you've made such a wonderful progression. And just quickly touching upon the fact that midway through, so you said midway through the aqueduct meet, um, you basically were without agent. That must have been quite the the shock to your system how how did you deal with that yeah it was um I mean I really missed waking up in the morning and having the track to go to and I would still get up early and had my equisizer and I had a home gym with um the ladies that I was living with and so I could stay fit and but you know it's just not the same and feeling like I can't push my business without being there and without talking to people face to face and I can make phone calls, but I just knew it's so different. And so it was very hard to be patient. I was really grateful for that job in Staten Island at the time working at the Swan Animal Clinic. So I could do my workouts, I could go and have purpose there and then, you know, see how many races I could ride on the weekend, but it just wasn't picking up. And so a lot of it was just really testing my patience. But Ramon had talked about that too with me. And he had said, you know, like every jockey is going to have these ups and downs. And he says, I think it shows you how much you really want to do it. Because, you know, if you decide during a downtime like this, that it's not worth it to you, then, you know, maybe you didn't want to be a jockey as much as you thought. And for me, like that thought never crossed my mind. Like even during the toughest parts, I'm I never considered stopping. And so I think it proved to myself just how much I want this and how much I'm willing to fight for it. And so that's why I kept thinking, you know, if I just need to be patient and wait it out in New York, and if that's going to make the difference for the trainers to see, like, I'm serious about this, then I'll do that. But, you know, once the other agents were saying, I don't think much is going to change if you can't get on the backside, then I decided, okay, well, now I need to go start working on my business at a different track and it may be fresh trainers, but I'm willing to start from the bottom and just, you know, prove myself and try to break in. And so far it just seems like it has been a really good move coming here. And, um, a lot of them followed me this summer at Monmouth and were already aware of who I was, which has been a pleasant surprise. You certainly hit the ground running when getting to Laurel Park on your first day riding a winner. That was, you know, absolutely marvelous for you. And you're, you know, kickstarting this new phase as well as continuing your career. I just wanted to ask you a bit more questions of your time studying to become a veterinarian, because I did see that you traveled a fair bit, you know, worldwide internships. Is there any that really stood out to you or what was the most intriguing place that you visited? Yeah, it was my goal to kind of with everything that I do, I believe you should go where the best people in the world are. So again, that's how I've chosen some of the racetracks I've gone to. And then um, for my international travel, that really made me interested in going to Japan, Hong Kong, Dubai, Ireland. And my favorite of those was Japan because it was just so different. And their training facilities are really top of the art. And I was able to ride their horses as well. And so I went to the Northern Farm, which is part of the Shaddai Stallion Station where Deep Impact was standing. And I would get to gallop their horses in the morning and um, do like breezing up this indoor uphill training track. And they have these like monitoring devices on your helmet so they can get your splits. They have you on a video screen. 
then every important person from the farm was standing at the top of it behind this glass uh, building where they can watch their horses work and because they hadn't had an American um, veterinarian come there before or they've had very few American jockeys too so they were all excited to see me so to get to the end of your breeze and see like the owners of the Shaddai Stallion Station standing there watching you was pretty surreal, but, you know, a little intimidating, but very exciting. And then in the afternoon, I'd go into surgeries with them, or I'd go and shadow the vets doing some repro work. And so it was a really interesting um, place to be. And I was there right before their select sale that they have. And so um, getting to prep the horses for that and um, was quite an experience. And then I'd say... Second to that, I actually was really impressed by Ireland, and I was there riding the racehorses in the morning again, and with Johnny Murda, who I've really ex- respected as what he did as a jockey, and having so so much success in America as an Irish jockey is uh, quite a feat, and so he's been a great horseman and had a lot of success so far training, and um, then I would again go out and do vet work in the afternoon, and so. I just really enjoyed being able to pair the two, um, you know, combining my two passions and learning both aspects of, you know, the horse racing industry from the medical perspective and the riding perspective, and then just seeing how people do it different in different parts of the world and different jurisdictions. Johnny Mert is an absolute legend. <laughs> yeah. He is amazing horseman, just a wonderful person to to be around. And uh, we were in Ireland with the Flying Start, so I got to know him a little bit. And I was riding out um, with John Ox at the time when he was okay. still training. So one, I mean, the Kerr is just absolutely wonderful yes. training grounds and getting to know the way to do things over there must have put you in good stead and I'm very envious of you visiting Japan by the way still on my bucket list oh yeah you have to go I mean oh what they've in terms of their quality of racing the quality of of the breed there it's just it's surreal so I can't wait to hopefully one day see that for myself firsthand did it ever occur to you to stay in one of those countries just looking at sort of their different uh, racing cultures was it ever tempting to say I'm going to try it out here yeah, absolutely. And I was actually talking with Japan about coming and working there as a veterinarian when I graduated. And it was actually their head vet. He'd been following my jockey career. And he said to me, well, don't you want to try being a full-time jockey? And, you know, do you really want to give that up and come be a full-time vet? And I was just so surprised to hear it from someone, you know, at the top of their veterinary career and putting it into that perspective of like, you know, like this is a really unique opportunity and like to be a professional athlete takes a lot of you know natural abilities and I feel like I've been given those and so I thought you know why would I potentially throw that away um if it is something I'm so passionate about and uh so yeah I'd actually I considered going to Japan and I really hope that as my jockey career progresses I would love to have some stints where I'm riding abroad and um, a lot of jockeys have talked about their experiences and like Kent DeZormo and Victor Espinoza would talk about Japan being their favorite places that they had ridden actually and um, even just getting to ride in Dubai and I'd spent a lot of time in Dubai doing, doing externships and I remember one of my drivers saying to me maybe one day I'll be driving you to the World Cup as a jockey instead of as a vet and I just thought man like that would be the dream so I really hope that that does come true. Yeah, wonderful racing jurisdiction. And what what would be your 
dream as a jockey or maybe as a, a part-time or at some point full-time veterinarian where, where would you love to end up um as a veterinarian ultimately would be in Japan just because I do really love their forward thinking and how much racing thrives there and as a jockey I mean I'm hoping to have a 10-15 year career and to be riding in the top races around the world would be the goal. I mean, you never know. And sometimes you just need to be on that lucky horse. But I really hope that, you know, I'm gonna give it all I got and see if I can get there. And either way, I do enjoy the process. I mean, like I said, even just being there in the mornings, I love just breezing horses. And, you know, the best feeling is going across that wire first, but everything else that leads up to it, I really enjoy. And so, you know, I'm happy to work as hard as I can to see if I can reach those goals. But certainly winning some top grade ones would be the ideal. Well, I certainly feel that the racing industry is much the richer for having you in it, being able to explain, you know, physical aspects of the thoroughbreds as well as your passion and your commitment. Farron, I wish you the best of luck and, and thank you so much for joining me today on Talk Racing to Me. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's very interesting having that chat with you. Massive thank you goes out to Farron, who truly gave me a lot of new insight to put into my back pocket. Aside from sharing with us some of her personal experiences, as always, do check out the In The Money media feed as nobody ever seems to sleep on there continuously creating new content every single week. The group is growing and growing. I'm not even going to try um, and do what JK did. Name everyone. Okay, maybe. Hold on. Let me try. The main players, though, JK and PTF, Nick Lux Daily Show, Matt Bernier, Red Bull Rewind with Spencer, Acacia's revamped In The Ring, and we have a new show, The Owner's Box, with Michelle Yu, who I greatly look up to. She's a marvelous broadcaster that I've had the pleasure of working with a little bit and learning from. And, of course, her co-host, Bill Cook, Koch, Bill Koch. Oh, dear, I better learn how to say that one. Billy Koch. Anyhow, you know the drill. Go to inthemoneypodcast.com to check it all out. And, of course, keep tuning in subscribe, reach out, comment to me at Naomi Tucker on Twitter, Tucker, two Ks, and on the two podcast feeds on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, I think it's called. I, I don't have an Android, won't ever be going back in this lifetime, I think, Google Play. There we are. Stay safe, be happy, go swimming. I picked this up again over the last few weeks. Got to love socially distant swimming. Nobody bothers you. That's all for this week, guys. See you next week.